that were feeling pressure to leave Christianity and return to Judaism. And so we share with them, and in a different way, we share with them in feeling that pressure to quit, to not persevere, to not be steadfast in our faith. And so today we continue that, and I hope it continues to be an encouragement and a challenge to each one of you uh, as we uh, continue in this book. It's crazy to think that it has been almost 10 years since I felt a call to leave that small little Baptist church halfway from here to Rochester to come to Syracuse, New York to be a part of planting churches. It's been almost 10 years. Can you believe that? 10 years since we started this process of feeling a sense of call to the area. For the whole 10 years that we've been here, we've encountered something that uh, really is reflective of the kind of context that we're in. To plant a church in Syracuse is to plant a congregation to present the gospel in a heavily Roman Catholic society. Am I understating it? That basically... Uh, you know, while society is shifting to some degree, if there's any religious backdrop in central New York, it is very much a Roman Catholic uh, community. And so what comes with that is an expectation that if you're a church, there is some uh, sense of where is your sacred space? Are you tracking with me? So when we were meeting and we were in somebody's living room calling it church, there was a little bit of like, really? That's kind of weird. Are you a cult? <laughs> and we'd have to explain, well, no, <laughs> we're not that. But there's an expectation in the minds of worshipers that worship was to be done in a holy place, in a sacred space. So much that when you would invite people to participate in worship with you, you would often get responses like this. Your intentions being to invite them so that they would hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might hear something like this. You might hear, uh, maybe someday, but not right now because my life really doesn't line up to that. Like, I'm pretty profane. I'm a big-time sinner. Uh, I'm pretty dirty. And if a guy like me walked into a church, you know what would happen, right? I would get struck by lightning or I'd be struck dead to some degree. Like if I just walked in there into that holy place, being the unholy person that I am, I would drop dead. Have you, raise your hand if you've heard someone say something like that. I would drop dead if I walked into the walls of a church, right? This idea that going to worship was really going to a holy place. And to be in the presence of a holy God in a holy place as an unholy person puts you in quite a vulnerable position. And so people said to themselves, listen, for me to do that, like I recognize the need for that. Like I should be doing that. I should be worshiping God in a holy place in his holy presence. I should be doing that which is actually quite a biblical concept if you think about it, right? But here's the thing. They would say this, first I've got to clean myself up. Have you heard that? Before I go into that place, I've got to do something different. 
I've got to conjure up a new set of behaviors. I have to radically transform my life before God will accept me in His presence. Raise your hand if you've heard that kind of mentality. I hear it constantly. Right? The only way God would accept my worship is if I clean myself up first. If I transform my life first, then God would accept me. This is a very important consideration for us. There is indeed a holy God. And He desires to be worshipped in a holy place. By a holy people. And you feel the weight of that even now, don't you? That this is at the heart of God. He desires, as a holy God, to be worshipped in a holy place by a holy people. And yet we come face to face with the reality of our profanity of our sin, of our depravity, a sense of we don't belong there, and if we go there, we are in deep, eternal trouble. And so the question becomes for us, how? Last week we asked, how can sinful humanity have a restored relationship with God? Today we ask the question, how can an unholy people like us Give God what He deserves and desires. How can we, an unholy people, worship a holy God in a holy place? Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Follow along with me. You can follow along on the screen. Or if you have your Bibles, let's dig in. Let's go old school. Let's dig into our scriptures and let's get out our pens. Let's circle some words. Let's engage the word of God today. That's why we're here, right? To engage God's word and let God's word speak to us. So let's let it speak here. Verse 1 of chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. But he, and he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, 
the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, Amen. Lots going on there, eh? Some of you Canadians know exactly what I'm talking about. Lots going on there. Verse 1, we see that there are regulations for worship. And already we're uncomfortable. Because there's something inside each and every one of us that wants to define our worship of God. We want to call the shots. We want to make the rules. Right? I think we live today in an age where the word of God less and less is sadly defining our worship. Right? We don't like regulations. We like Jesus and then freedom to do whatever else we want. And pretty much worship is... Um, not something that we see as to be regulated, right? So oftentimes you may hear someone say, I worship Jesus today on my boat. Have you heard people say something like that? You go worship God at church, I'm going to worship God on the golf course. Some of you finally said amen. Right? There's this idea that, yes, we want to worship Jesus, but we like to worship Jesus on our own terms. We like to regulate it. We don't really like rules and arrangements. We don't want anyone telling us how we are to worship the God uh, that we worship. Thus, in the end, I think in many ways, we make our own God, don't we? But you see, worship has been and continues to be regulated. That is, what I mean by that is, we are called to worship God the way that He wants us to worship Him. Okay? And that's what we see. The first covenant, the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. That is this. For worship to be acceptable by a holy God, it must be done in a holy place. Right? We see this that according to the old covenant, that, that first section was called just that. It was called the holy place. And the second section, if the first place wasn't holy enough, the second section was called the what? Most 
holy place. So we see that as God is establishing a covenantal relationship with Israel, He's setting up regulations and arrangements for them. This is how you are to worship me. You can't just worship God any way you desire, in any way you want to. You must worship me in accordance with who I am and the very ways in which I've laid it out in my revealed word. We have to grab onto this. Do you see this? There's a, a regulation in the heart of God that to worship God, to be in a, the presence of such a holy God, it must be done in a holy place. But not only that, for worship to be acceptable by this holy God, it must be done by a holy priesthood. Right? There was a priest that was set apart. And the priest would go in and perform in that first section certain ritual duties. And in that most holy place, there would be that one day of year called the Day of Atonement, where he and he alone would go in to uh, the most holy place with blood, as it says, the blood of the sacrifice of the, uh, of the offering that was given, right? He would go into that most holy place and he would do so bringing blood as a, a sacrifice for his sin and a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Every year, annually, this was done on the Day of Atonement the most holy place. He goes on to say, there is much detail about this which we cannot now speak. And so I'm not going to do that either. I'm going to spare you the details because the author does. But please, if you want to understand to a greater degree what was going on in the Day of Atonement, look for yourselves. Turn back to Leviticus. Right? Read uh, about all the offerings and then the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. And if you want to even go back further, look at how the... the the God uh, passed over the sins of the people in, in the Exodus, right? This idea that blood was necessary to deal with and pass over sin. So turn back, look at some of that background and those details. These things I'm not going to speak about now in detail. Here's the point. A holy God desires to be worshipped by a holy people in a holy place. We have to understand that this is the very desire of God. And this desire that He has is something that He deserves. God deserves this. God desires this, and God deserves this. And so, there is one major issue that stands in the way of Him receiving what He desires. And you know what that is? Sin. Right? You see that the necessity of blood is a revelation that there's something standing in the way of God receiving what He desires from us. And it is nothing less and nothing more than our sin that stands between us and a holy God. The author of Hebrews has been very clear about this. And he goes on to show that while these rituals, that these this holy place and this most holy place, these rituals were there, a part of the old covenant, that they were just a shadow of what was to come. That they were not the substance. That really, what we see here is that the old covenant is unable to sufficiently provide 
remedy for sin so that God can get what he wants. Look at what verses 8 and 10 say, 8 through 10 say. By this, this annual offering for sin, this regular, regular priestly duty in the holy place, by this, year after year, time after time, by this, the Holy Spirit is indicating that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. He goes on to say that according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered, but they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body. What he's saying is this. This old covenant, this old arrangement is wholly insufficient to deal with the very issue that stands between us and the living God. The old covenant was not able. The place was not able. The priesthood was not able. The blood was not able. The offering was not able. To make us into the people that God desires so that He can get the worship He deserves. You could imagine every single time they went into that holy place, every single year that they went into the most holy place, they were reminded that, man, this didn't work last time. We're going to talk about that later in Hebrews. Every year was a reminder that relationship with God still had a major obstacle, sin. And it's not been dealt with yet. We need another sacrifice for another year of sin. It was consequently unable to handle the thing that separated us from God. I think when I read this about the annual, regular rituals in the constant generation upon generation, the hard work of the flesh to, re to deal with the sin issue in relationship with God, to, to deal with the fact that we are profane and not holy, that constant reminder just reminds me of this uh, spiritual treadmill that we often find ourselves on. Right? Tons of effort. Much sweat. Tons of work. Energy expelled. And at the end of the day, we've gone absolutely nowhere. Some of you may find yourself in that very place spiritually today. You're operating and living in relationship with God according to the flesh. You're trying so hard to make up for things that you have done by good behaviors. You're trying to make up for sin by doing things better. Trying harder. Working, enslaving over it, sweating spiritually. But at the end of the day, you recognize that no matter how much you do that you deem to be good, it never deals and removes 
the issue of all the bad, sinful, rebellious actions and attitudes that you have had. We've been trying to teach our kids this when they misbehave. You cannot deal with misbehavior by having good behavior. Is somebody tracking with me? You cannot make up for sin by doing what is right in your own flesh. That is, you cannot clean yourself up in the deepest part of who you are. The flesh has no ability to do that. Doing so is indeed a spiritual treadmill. Some of you right now are living with the shame and the guilt of personal sin that you cannot shake. You feel enslaved. You feel stuck. It is very real pain. It is very real sorrow. And you are thinking to yourselves as you continue to struggle and live in the shame and the guilt of this sin. You think to yourselves, I'm going to do better next time. I'm going to show others or I'm going to show God how I can serve Him. Raise your hand if you've ever lived with that kind of mentality. Friends, I battle it every single day. I'll clean myself up for God so that He'll accept me. That is so often the, the false gospel that the people of this world, even religious people, have embraced. If I just get myself cleaned up, God will accept my worship next time. Friends, that is a false gospel and that is a spiritual treadmill that will leave you exhausted and still unclean. You will run far and you will get absolutely nowhere that way. Because the law and the flesh are unable to deal with the sin issue that separates us from a holy God. We cannot in our own effort make ourselves good enough so that God would accept us. And that creates such a gap, such a spiritual gap in a need. And you may not feel it in the 9 to 5 of Monday through Friday. You may not feel it. You may not say, oh man, I, I, I really need to figure out how I can worship God acceptably. You may not be saying that. But I'm telling you, that's why we're here today. To remind you of the ultimate issues of life. To remind you that there is nothing more significant than your relationship with God. And there's nothing more important than you figuring out how to appropriate the remedy that God has supplied for the sin issue. And so that you can live the very way that God designed you to live. Live in acceptable worship of Him 24-7, 365 through all, all eternity. That's what God wants. That's what God deserves. And that is your pathway to true meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in life. God. And then you look at verse 11, and I have to move on. And you read, after this 10 verses, that says that the, the inadequacy of the old covenant, the insufficiency of the old regulations and arrangements, that we can't do it according to the flesh. You read that, and then you get to verse 11, when you're just about out of hope, 
and you read, but when Christ, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, but when Christ, guys, in the Greek text, you don't see this in the English. It's just the first word is Christ. It's in terms of an emphasis that you don't see in the English. But man, when that word is the first word in the sentence, it is an emphasis for us to not miss. But when Christ, but when Christ, this new direction, this new hope that is given to the sinner that is profane in the presence of a holy God, but when Christ, reminds me of all those gospel passages in the New Testament that we mention often. You are dead in your sin. But God, being rich in mercy. But when Christ, the first word of this sentence, but a reminder that it is, as Hebrews has shown us, it is the last word of God about sin. It is the last word, the final word of God about sin, about truth about reality, about hope, about healing, about redemption. The first word is Christ, and the last word is Christ. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, through the greater and more perfect tent, verse 12, that main verb, he entered, right? That that, that priest entered into the holy place. That high priest entered into the most holy place. And then he left. He went in regularly, but he left. The high priest went in annually, but he left. But when Christ appeared, when he showed up publicly on the scene, when he appeared through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all. That is, he went in one time and he never left the most holy place in heaven. He never went home. He didn't just go in for a moment, serve and leave. He didn't just go in the blood of bulls and calves and make an offering and then leave. He went in and he stayed. You know why? Because he was able to accomplish what everything else, everyone else, was insufficient and inadequate to accomplish. Our redemption. The setting free from sin forever. Once for all. Sometimes you read that, we think it's one person for all people. I don't think that's what it's saying here. What it's saying is this, that Christ went into the holy place one time, and he stayed there for all eternity, and he's still there right now. Christ has entered the most holy place. He has ushered in a new era of the good things that have come. And by the way, that means the abolishing and the vanishing of the old arrangement, of the old regulations. There is a new covenant mediated by a sufficient priest who brings an offering, by the way, that is truly without blemish and sufficient to deal with the sin of every one of you sitting in this room. Jesus was able. 
Jesus is able in his sacrifice to deal and accomplish with the very thing that everything else was solely, uh, um, sadly unable to accomplish. I want you to see that today. Christ is able. God is able. You say, no one could set me free from sin. No one could give me a relationship with God. I have done so many awful things. Christ is able. That's the gospel. Don't miss the gospel. Don't turn away from Christ to any other thing because it's unable to set you free from sin forever. But Christ is able in a way that no one and nothing else is able. So you ask the question, how can unholy people like you and me worship God in a holy place? There's only one way. In and through and because of Jesus Christ in His death and His blood that is sufficient to grant you that access into that holy place to cover every one of your sins, to set you free forever. That's what Christ has done. By the means of His own blood, He secures eternal redemption. Guys, that should give you security. That should give you confidence and boldness. Because when God secures an eternal redemption, no one can take it from you. Security done. So often we praise and and give glory to people that are able to get things done. Get it done, guys, right? We see that. Even in our midst, we have many people in this church that are, something needs to be done, they just get it done. You know who we're talking about. But in Jesus Christ, we have a get it done God. It's done. Christ did it. We don't have to do it in the flesh because Christ has accomplished it on our behalf by the means of His own blood in His death for us. So today, if you feel stuck and enslaved in sin, Christ is your Redeemer. Don't look anywhere else. Don't look to the left or to the right. Don't rest in anything else. Don't give up on the sole source of eternal redemption. And maybe you're thinking personally about specific sins that you're wrestling with. I want you to see who Christ is. I want you to see what He has accomplished for you. I want you to see that His work sets you free from sin. You can't ignore sin. You can't accommodate sin. You can't continue to live in sin in relationship to a holy God. But you can be set free from sin through Jesus Christ. So maybe today, a prayer for you is this. As you pray to God through Christ, You say, Lord, set me free forever from, and you fill in the blank. May an act of faith in Christ be a prayer to Christ, 
a prayer to the Father. Lord, through Christ, set me free from you fill in the blank. And remember, no matter what's in that blank, that God hears the prayer of faith. And God responds with the all-sufficient power of the blood of Jesus to set you free. He who the Son has freed is free indeed. Isn't there such strength in this passage? I feel like I'm confident and bold and screaming at you all because I kind of am. But I think that's what we see going on here. Christ. Christ. When you see the inadequacy and insufficiency of your own flesh and even the, the old covenant... Don't drown in despair. See Christ. He's enough to set you free from sin forever. In many ways, He is the end of the spiritual treadmill. Amen? Just turn it off and plug the sucker. I mean, I don't know if this is a great illustration, but if there's an antithesis to the treadmill of going nowhere and working hard, think of Christ as the ultimate Iron Man who ran the full distance for you so that you can rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest from your works. Rest. You don't have to try hard and do better. You can't even do it. It's a never-ending just treadmill of getting nowhere and working hard. But in me, you can rest. You can sit. You can rest assured of my acceptance of you because my blood has covered you. Sacrifice of Jesus is able to do what nothing else can do. What everything else has failed to do. And he goes on to say, listen, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that is, if, if all this is purifying us on the outside, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. We just sang that, right? He's the lamb without blemish. How much more will the blood of Christ to the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, Jesus' sacrifice was able to do what all else failed to do. Purify and cleanse us on the inside. You see, everything else we do, you know, kind of irons the clothes. It puts on a nice coat and a tie, and it makes us look good on the outside. There's a religious person. There's someone that knows God. They go to church every week. They go to small group. They give a little bit of money. They smile. They shake your hand. Man, they look like they're doing great. But we all know that the nature of sin can leave us looking good on the outside and Jesus looking and piercing us with his omnipotence and his 
all-knowing nature and looking inside of us and saying, you're clean on the outside, but you're filthy on the inside. That that's what religion does. It cleans the outside of the cup. Remember that with the Pharisees? But on the inside, we're stained and unsanitized, unsanctified for worship, unfit. And God doesn't accept our worship at all. Some of you may be struggling with that. Spiritual posturing. Look at me. I'm good. But in the deepest part of you, you're cold. And you're hard. And you're proud. And there are sins that nobody knows about. But let's be clear. Jesus sees with his eyes. And he knows your heart. Just like when he looked at Saul and David and said, man, he looks good, but I'm going with the man after my own heart. God looks at our hearts. And we need a clean heart. Not just a clean body, a clean heart. But what he's saying is this, is that Christ was able to do with his sacrifice, with his blood, what everything else failed miserably to do. Clean us on the inside. That's the gospel. The work of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, when embraced by faith, radically transforms the human heart. It cleans it. It sanctifies it. It perfects it because of the work of Jesus applied to it. So Jesus is able to do what everything else was tragically unable to accomplish. The cleaning of our hearts. And then we see the purpose behind it. Is it so that we can worship God acceptably? How can unholy people worship a holy God in a holy place? Well, the simple answer to the question is, they can't. It's not possible. Unholy people can't worship a holy God in a holy place. But holy people can. And we see that that's exactly what the work of Christ, when embraced, does to each and every one of us. That when we trust Him and we don't move our allegiance and adoration from Him, guess what it does? It creates in us an absolutely transformed heart. And our standing before God is righteous. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see unholy. That's why Paul can write letters and say to the saints at Ephesus, the holy ones, because the blood of Christ has cleaned those people up. And when God looks at you, he says, clean holy. You see, faith in union with Christ, guess what? It appropriates His holiness. His holiness and righteousness is now yours, and it is secured eternally. We are cleaned up on the inside. All of our sins are forgiven, and they are no longer considered. Jesus, God does not deal with us according to our sins, but according to His mercy in Christ. Friends, that's what you need. 
to worship God acceptably. You need Christ's blood applied to your life and heart. But before you embrace it, you have to see it. And that's been the author of Hebrews. An arguing, a pleading with you. Don't turn from Christ. Don't rest and trust in any other thing. Don't run back to the old covenant. Don't look to American society and values. Don't look to what the world would offer you as your hope and your allegiance ultimately. But look to Christ. Rest in Him. Trust in Him. Persevere in Him. Don't let go of Him. Consider Him. Cling to Him. Walk in Him. Worship Him. Because He and He alone was able to give God what He desired and deserved. Holy people who worship Him in a holy place. We were driving in the car yesterday, and one of my kids said, isn't it selfish for God to want everyone to worship him? Anyone get that question? It's kind of, think about it. Wait a minute. God wants our worship? God wants our adoration? He wants our affection? Isn't that kind of selfish? It's not. If God were to give his glory and honor and worship to something else, what would it make that something else? It would make it God. You see, God and God alone deserves what he desires, worship. That's what makes him God. And yet, the God who made us to know Him and to love Him, to serve Him and to worship Him. That's what it's saying. He's cleaned us up so that we might worship Him, serve the living God. It's not about you. It's not about your fulfillment ultimately. It's not about you having the best life here and now. It's not about that. It's about God getting what he desires and what he deserves. Worship. He's redeemed you so that you might worship him. We saw that in the book of Exodus. Why did he pull those people out of Egypt? So that they could worship him on this holy mountain. So that he would have a people that were set apart and holy for him. So that he might be worshipped in that place. Central to Understanding the Bible as a whole. A holy God desiring a holy people to worship Him in a holy place. And by the way, that is heaven. That's our hope. That we would be a holy people. Worshiping a holy God in a holy place. And that's what Revelation unveils to us. A holy God desiring a holy people to worship Him in a holy place. 
nothing but the sacrifice and the blood and the work of Jesus that makes that real and true and effective in our lives. And that's only selfish if it's not something that God is allowing us to share in. You see, it's His joy. It's His joy and His glory and His reign and His, his love and His mercy and His holiness that He has apart from us that in calling us to Himself, He's saying, here, share in it. Enjoy it. It's not a selfish God. He shares it. That's ultimately what salvation is. The ability for us to share in what is inherently and eternally God. His joy. His glory. Revel in it. That's life. And that's exactly what Jesus accomplished for us. Giving us that. Yes, it is a restoration. Yeah. It's a reconciliation. God, it is relational. But it is also deeply about the worship of God. Do you know that? God saved you that you might worship Him and enjoy every single minute of it. The fact that Jesus has done this, I think it gives us peace. It's done. We don't have to worry about it anymore. That is a beautiful gift in this world, a world full of anxiety. Christ entered once for all. That truth gives us great peace. And when we have peace in relationship to God, we have courage to serve Him, no matter what kind of pressure and persecution that this world throws at us. So don't give up. Cling tight. Hold on to the one who is able to accomplish what everything else failed to do. Set you free from sin forever. And clean you up on the inside so that you could worship him acceptably. Come on, 50 inch screen TVs at Best Buy, who cares? Beat that gift. Beat that gift. We pray today that you would receive it with humility, with joy, and a readiness to serve him every single day of your life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, passages like these, I, I honestly think to myself, there's not enough time. There's not enough passion. There's not enough illustrations. There's not enough points to adequately bring us to this in this little hour we call corporate worship. But Lord, we've given ourselves to it. We see the glory and the wonder of Christ. We pray that you would further anchor and reinforce the reality of Christ's work in our hearts today. Lord God, 
You did it all. You entered once for all. Your blood is sufficient. Your blood is our only hope to set us free from sin. Praise be to you forevermore. And all of God's people said, Amen.